we'd like to take a moment to give a big warm welcome to our Patreon supporters. As always, we appreciate your support and your help to make the show happen. Welcome Sarah G from Canby, Oregon, Allison P from Sherwood, Oregon, Jenny M from Albany, Oregon, Ash B from Grants Pass, Oregon, and Danielle B from Woodbridge, Virginia. We hope you like your extra content and swag. And if you want to get some Murder in the Rain love, go to patreon.com forward slash Murder in the Rain and subscribe now. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN. And you're listening to Murder in the Rain. When choosing a story, sometimes I'm inspired by something I've come across doing other research. Sometimes I seek out a specific theme or think about what the month represents, like how next month I'll be doing a story about a college campus as a back-to-school story. This month, I looked up what was celebrated or represented in August. While there are important things like Spinal Muscular Atrophy Awareness, International Peace Month, and National Dog Month, there are, of course, the nonsense celebrations like Crayon Collections, National Catfish, and Goat Cheese Month. The one that caught my eye, though, was the one that seemed most appropriate. August is National Immunization Awareness Month. Don't fret, I'm not going to be talking about COVID. Just to say that when reading stories about those that refuse to get vaxxed, the most upsetting to me is when I hear about a medical professional who doesn't take it. It just kind of hurts my brain to imagine a person witnessing the slow, horrible death a COVID patient goes through and for them to be like, eh, I'm good. This inspired a search for killer nurses, but what I found instead was a story of torture, harassment, and confusion surrounding the death of a Canadian nurse named Cindy James. Being a nurse is an inherently dangerous job, with potential exposure to infectious diseases, dealing with patients that are having mental health or drug-related issues. It's not surprising to learn nursing is far more dangerous than the average job. Non-fatal assaults, being verbal or physical, occur at a rate of 8.3 assaults per 10,000 nurses. Compare that to a private sector job that has only two cases per 10,000 workers. And that's just patients. Much like police officers and doctors, nurses have difficult schedules and stressful jobs. This leads to nursing having a suicide rate that is double that of the general population, higher addiction rates, and one of the highest divorce rates at 47%. And these numbers were all from before the pandemic. So it's not like things are getting better for our nurses, up to 93% of which are female. Just like 47% of her co-workers, Cindy James of Vancouver, British Columbia, was getting a divorce from her husband in 1982. Cindy was born Cynthia Elizabeth Hack on June 12, 1944, in Oliver, Okanagan, Simicamine, Regional District of British Columbia. As the oldest of six children to Otto and Matilda, or Tilly, Cindy was a natural when it came to helping the kids in the family. This may have been her inspiration to pursue the field of work she did. She graduated from nursing school in 1966 before becoming an administrator at a preschool for children with emotional disturbances and behavior issues. Before we get into Cindy's story, I want to say that there is a lot of information about this case out there and a lot of variations of that information. Before recording, I did reach out to Cindy's sister but did not get a response. I also found a detailed and very helpful timeline on the blog Ukbar Calling. They too did not respond to my request to provide sources. There are also books about the case, but they're now out of print, and while I love y'all and want to provide the most accurate story, I'm not about to pay 200 bucks for a book. 
I can only assume the timeline I found is based on the information from the books. That being said, all the details are as accurate as I can find, and I do apologize in advance if anything is inaccurate. As frustrating as all of that is, it kind of suits this confusing, complicated, and convoluted case. In the early 60s, Cindy, the pediatric nurse, met Roy Makepeace, the doctor, more specifically, the psychiatrist. A May-December romance, Roy was 18 years older than the 19-year-old Cindy. After 16 years, the marriage fell apart and the couple divorced in July of 1982. For the first time in her life, Cindy was on her own. She moved into a house in Richmond, British Columbia, and went on building a new life for herself. It is even rumored that she and Roy continued to date now and again as the divorce was being finalized. Then, about three months after the divorce, something happened. Cindy got a phone call, then another, and another. They weren't threatening at first, just a deadline or a whispering voice, but that quickly changed. In October of 82, after telling her family about the calls, they were able to convince her to go to the Vancouver Police Department to file a complaint. The next day, she made another report, more phone calls, and she was convinced she had heard someone trying to open the back door of her home. Before the end of the week, Cindy reported the phone calls, a potential prowler, and that a rock was thrown through her kitchen window. Most creepy and unsettling of all of the incidents so far, when Cindy pulled her sheets back to get into bed one night, she found that someone had broken into her house and slashed her pillow. With that, she called the police to her home. One of the officers that responded to the call was a Pat McBride. After talking with Cindy, he shared he thought the perpetrator could be her ex-husband, Roy, but Cindy knew Roy. In fact, she had called him about the pillow, and he was the one that suggested calling the police. After the pillow report, McBride was around more often, doing what he could to quell Cindy's fears. About two weeks after the first phone calls, he went to Cindy's on his own accord to equip her house with deadbolts. But safety wasn't the only reason for McBride's visits. He had become quite smitten with the beautiful blonde nurse, and he started to stop by to check on her almost every day, which Cindy was not opposed to. Less than a month after the phone calls started, something you think only happens in the movies happened to Cindy. She went out to get the mail, and in one of the envelopes was a note. On a piece of paper were cut out letters saying, Soon, Cindy. It was like something out of a nightmare. Fittingly, on Halloween of that year, less than a month after the harassment began, Officer McBride moved into the home with Cindy for personal protection. Oh, and because they were now dating. Now living in the home, it was reported that McBride saw Roy walking in the alley behind he and Cindy's home carrying a handgun and a rifle, but there is no documentation of that report being pursued. Additionally, there was an instance when McBride was able to answer the phone, but on the other end was silence, with the exception of a PA system faintly speaking in the background. Cindy was home with him at the time of that call. By mid-November 1982, Cindy was now living with her cop boyfriend and enjoying a reprieve from the menacing calls and letters. But that relief was short-lived when, going out to her car one day, Cindy found a note under her car's windshield. There was a photo that had been taken from a book called Malpractice, which there are a lot of books with that title, so unfortunately I couldn't find the exact one that had been used. I know for myself when I hear that word, I think strictly of medical malpractice. Interesting that both Cindy and her ex were in the medical field. The photo that was attached to the note was that of a body, accompanied by threatening language. 
The attacks were ramping up as the phone calls began again, and when they weren't happening, it was found Cindy's phone line had been cut in multiple places. Be it a lack of romance or the stress of the harassment, the live-in situation between Cindy and Officer McBride came to an end when Cindy asked him to move out. They didn't break up, though. They continued dating, and he kept his copy of the house key. Through all of the torment, Cindy would check in and talk with her family and friends about everything going on. Well, not everything. Her parents, Tilly and Otto, could tell by their daughter's behavior that something more was going on, that she knew more about who might be doing all of this, but that she was always reluctant to share anything more than what had happened, never who she thought it was. Three months after the calls started, Cindy was able to get a tap put on her phone. While some of the calls could be traced to the Vancouver area, the calls were all so short they were unable to get additional tracing information. When it came to the voice she would hear on the line from time to time, she claimed to have no idea who it belonged to. Before they put the tap on the phone, were they able to get information from the phone company about when the calls were happening and how many there were? I didn't see that there was a specific... um, printout or anything from the phone company. I do talk about them later on. Okay. By then, the notes took an even more personal turn, showing up on her porch, laying in her lawn. While in the beginning, the notes had postmarks, they eventually ended up being papers placed directly in her mailbox, and they were becoming more graphic. They would have photos of a woman with hands around her neck, a knife being held out, dead bodies, and the language was upsetting to say the least. Now, these weren't ransom notes with full sentences either. They were almost like keywords that had been cut out of magazines. Things like soon, bloody, Merry Christmas, knife, behead, and so much more. It would seem that with so many notes and objects touched, like windows, doors, papers, officers could find at least one fingerprint or piece of evidence pointing in the direction of a suspect, but they didn't mostly because it was pretty well known and discussed that the police didn't actually believe Cindy. They had decided early on that she was mentally unwell and was, in fact, harassing herself. So Cindy carried her secret information, only getting support from family and some friends. Again, conflicting reports stated that fingerprints were not found, while others say they were never even looked for. Just when it seemed like the torture couldn't get worse, Cindy experienced her first of many physical attacks. The first one came at the end of January in 1983. Cindy's close friend, Agnes Woodcock, decided to swing by Cindy's house to check up on her. She and her husband, Tom, had been supportive of Cindy through the last few months, and she wanted to touch base with her. When Agnes knocked on the door, though, there was no answer. At first, she thought Cindy must be taking her nightly bath, but she wanted to be sure her friend was okay before she left, so she walked to the back door. Then her heart jumped. She saw a figure crouching behind bushes looking into the window of the house. Startled and yelling out, Agnes quickly realized that the figure was in fact Cindy. She had been attacked and was hiding, looking out for the perpetrators. When police arrived, Cindy told them that she had gone into the garage to get a box. Once there, someone grabbed her from behind and began choking her. There were actually two men, and unfortunately, the only descriptor she got was that one was wearing white sneakers. Once she was grabbed, she was cut on her hand before a black nylon was wrapped around her neck to the point of blacking out. Upon waking, she was found to be covered with cuts, presumably by a sharp knife or even a scalpel. And when interviewed, she shared she had a vague recollection of being raped with the knife, presumably the handle, which was used in the attack. 
Additionally, she claimed to have been sodomized with twigs and had a cigarette put out on her vagina. But upon examination, there was no sign of an attack to her genitals or rectum. As for the men, she claimed they had threatened to cut off her breasts and cut out her eyes if she screamed. This was a sign for Cindy. It was time to move. It is, oddly enough, reported that Cindy moved back into the house she and Roy had shared, asking him to move out, which he did. As the investigation continued, an officer in charge of the investigation asked that Cindy take a polygraph, which she agreed to. There are conflicting reports as to if she failed both or if they were both just inconclusive. With further questioning, Cindy opened up about a moment that answered the question as to why she wasn't sharing more with investigators. Cindy admitted that during the attack in the garage, the knife was held to her throat and with a threat of killing her, her sister, and her parents, was told not to tell the police who they were. Things were getting so bad, Cindy moved yet again. She painted her car, changed her last name. She was starting a new, hopefully private and protected life. But of course, that wasn't the case. The calls started again. Some of the threats were even recorded, like this one saying, slowly and terrifyingly, Cindy, dead meat soon. Did they evaluate the cuts on her body to determine whether they could have been self-inflicted? I think that's the biggest problem with all of this is that too nothing old was case. determined either way. Yeah. And yeah, every the, I can't find a police. And this is from the 80s. And I can't find a police report. I can't find court documents. I can't find like. Interesting. I think in the end, you'll come to the conclusion I did, which is things are hidden away so that we don't talk about it anymore because things got messed up. I see. It could be a male or a female. It does sound thoughts. kind of feminine, right? It does. It does. My I had that, that my thought first as well. thought was it sounds like a woman trying to sound like a man. Because at first it's so grumbly, it's like Cindy. Yeah. Dead me. And it kinda like me kind of gets mm -hmm. higher and a little softer. And it's like, that sounds a little feminine. Or is that a guy doing like a girl voice like yeah. hey, has hey. anyone recent looked into that girl if you feel like losing your life to reddit <laughs> type in this case okay well, i will because you know nothing more than i don't like anything more except for at 3 p.m on a weekday <laughs> going to reddit and losing the rest of my work day Perfect. just kidding my boss who listens <laughs> you would never through a nearly year-long harassment campaign, Cindy continued to work at a care facility, the Blenheim House, but even at her place of work, Cindy couldn't find solace as the threatening letters started to arrive there. Back at home, a year after the first attack, the first of four incidents involving cats took place, so listener warning. Oh no. Coming home on the evening of October 15th, Cindy found a cat in her garden. The cat was dead, strangled with rope and with it, a note that read, You're next. The garden remained a focal point for the attackers when it was found destroyed a few weeks later. When speaking to police, Roy's name was brought up again as a potential suspect, but Cindy insisted he would have never done that to the garden. So let's talk about Cindy's journals. For years, she kept journals sharing her thoughts, fears, documenting encounters and attacks. When years later she was writing about the garden being uprooted, she shared that she did think Roy could have done it, 
as he had done the exact same thing during their marriage. Interesting. And then this gives me thought on he probably knew where she moved to, right? Because she was... They were still in contact. Exactly. And I'm thinking, how you'd either have to be a cop mm-hmm. or be close with someone to know when they're going to pick up a move like that if they're trying or to avoid detection. A counterpoint or she thought cops would see her saying that he did that back in the day and repeated the behaviors. That's how everything is in this case. You can absolutely play both sides, and that's why it's so frustrating. Desperate for help, but still unable to share the information she had, Cindy was talked into hiring a personal private investigator. It was McBride who convinced her to do so after an incident in November when she came home to find two more dead cats, one strangled, one hit by a car, accompanied by another threatening note and her phone lines being cut yet again. McBride provided Cindy with contact information for the private eye, a man named Ozzy Caban. As part of his work with Cindy, Ozzy provided her with a two-way radio since her phone lines were cut so frequently. In July of 84, there was a call on the radio. It came from the panic button that sent an emergency signal to Ozzy. Fearful a response would tip the intruders off and blow an opportunity at apprehending them, Ozzy didn't respond. Instead, he rushed to her house. Upon arrival, Ozzy ran to the door and knocked, but there was no answer. Looking into the window, he found a horrific sight. There was Cindy, face down on the floor. He thought for sure she was dead. Kicking down the door to make his way into the house, he started to urgently search for a pulse, and amazingly, he found a faint one. Cindy was alive, but not unharmed. Cindy had been hit in the head and once again choked with a black nylon into unconsciousness. In what will become a common injury in her attacks, there was a needle mark in her arm. However, toxicology showed there was nothing in her system. The most jarring offense, a paring knife had been stabbed through the top of Cindy's left hand, embedding the knife into the floor. Between the knife and her hand was yet another disturbing note that read, Now you must die, cunt. Once again, there are conflicting reports as to whether Cindy and Roy were still dating during all of this, as in they were divorced and for the year and a half that she had been attacked, he was still in the picture as a casual relationship. But now Cindy was sharing other details about their marriage. She disclosed to police that during the marriage, Roy had threatened to beat her and had even hit her a few times. This led to the police finally questioning Roy on Valentine's, I mean Emily's birthday, 1984. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I was two, by the way. (laughs) Second birthday. (laughs) Roy worked with police, even admitting that he had slapped her when they were together. He then shared a conflicting opinion. One, that he can't imagine who would do such a thing, but that perhaps Cindy angered a parent at her facility, a parent that might have been involved in the mafia, because that's what mobsters are known for, (laughs) non-rash, deliberate harassment. I'm sorry. Okay. Roy is either the the best suspect or the perfect person to pin it on. He is not making himself look good here. Right. Is he such a doofus that he's saying this stuff, which only makes it sound more likely that he did it? Just throw it anywhere you can like get that's the like, eyes off you that's like um i don't know that r- makes me think of a children's book or something like berenstain bears we didn't break the vase there was actually a purple flying monster that came in and did <laughs> yeah. it. that probably did it yeah so to have this he doesn't other know occam's thing, razor exactly so to have this <laughs> other idea like oh maybe it was a parent in the mafia it's like that's a little extreme and also 
Do you know something about that? Could you elaborate? Yeah, if you're going to be that specific, that means you probably have more information. Or you're making it up. <laughs> One of the two. <laughs> with no new leads coming from the interview with Roy, police once again have Cindy take a polygraph, which she passes. Not that a polygraph was helpful to her. Through the next few months, the calls continued at home and work. Her windows were broken. Her phone line was cut over and over again. Unsurprisingly, this was taking a major toll on Cindy. She had gone from the fun, loving, joyous person she was to a frail, weakened, depressed skeleton of who she used to be. In June of 84, Cindy once again called for help from Ozzy. He arrived to hear Cindy tell a harrowing tale, that she had come home to find the back door partially open. Inside the house, she found a cigarette butt that wasn't of the brand she smoked, and another note, this time a sexually explicit birthday note, even though her birthday had been a month prior. Most upsettingly, her dog Heidi. Cindy found her tied to the kitchen table with the same rope used to strangle the cats. She had been beaten and was bruised, but alive. That attack was followed up by another strangled cat outside the home. Calling Ozzy on the evening of July 3rd, Cindy let him know she was going to take Heidi for a walk. That was at 8.30 p.m. At midnight, someone in the neighborhood awoke to a knock at their door. Opening it, they found Cindy, who promptly collapsed. Again, a black nylon was tied around her neck. When interviewed, she claimed that the only memory she had of the incident was that a dark green van pulled up to ask for directions. In the vehicle was a bearded man and a blonde woman. Just as before, there were two needle marks in her arm, but no drugs besides her prescription antidepressant were in her system. She couldn't or wouldn't provide any more information. Could it be all of the injuries to her head and emotional trauma were causing Cindy to not be able to provide more concrete information? Or was she still so fearful for her life and the lives of her loved ones she felt she had no other choice? To help unlock these answers, Ozzy suggested Cindy speak to a doctor, perhaps even a hypnotist. Taking his advice, Cindy worked with hypnotist Hal Booker. While she did participate, there was no new information released. Then came the second session of hypnotherapy in October, just about two years after it all began. Cindy was hypnotized, and what she said was shocking. She claimed while under hypnosis that she had at one point witnessed a double homicide. This left the people working with Cindy wondering, had Roy found out what she had witnessed? If so, why didn't he just kind of take care of the situation? Why drag it out for literal years? Wouldn't you be fearful she would be sharing damning information? Then, two years passed. There had been zero leads. Sure, Roy was on the radar and his background had been looked into, but he wasn't named a suspect. And much like you listening, Cindy and Ozzy were frustrated with the total lack of development in solving her case. The investigators assured her. They checked all her friends, co-workers, family members. They even did surveillance on her house, but nothing. What they didn't tell Cindy was that they thought she had been the culprit all along. Cindy had a peaceful few months, October through December that year, but then the phone calls started again. Hoping and desperate for any kind of breakthrough, Cindy agreed to be hypnotized again in January, this time with investigators present. During that session, more information about the potential murder came up. Cindy claimed that in 1981, she was on a yachting trip with Roy during which he murdered and dismembered a young couple. Using an axe, he then wiped the blood from a severed limb across her face. On that same trip was Melanie, Cindy's sister. 
When interviewed after Cindy's confession, Melanie claimed to have not heard or witnessed anything to the like. Additionally, investigators could not find any evidence as to who the couple was or if any murder even took place. Cindy, now convinced her newly recalled memory was real, called Roy to talk to him about it. He recorded the call, turned it into the police, and they became more involved, following Roy and other unnamed suspects as part of their surveillance. Nothing came of it. Making it through the winter and spring, it was in June of 85 that Cindy hit her breaking point. It's no wonder that living in a waking nightmare of being stalked, harmed, and threatened, Cindy attempted to take her life via a pill overdose. She ended up going to the hospital where she recovered and was sent home within a few days. As part of her release plan, she was to go stay at her brother's house for protection from the stalker and herself. But Cindy didn't adhere to the agreement. She went to her own home alone. Although there had been recommendations for Cindy to have her phone lines protected, she declined, and a week after her attempt to end her life, her lines were cut again. In July, the police, perhaps desperate to prove their commitment to the case, set up a week-long stakeout at her home. They were, in that moment in time, determined to catch whoever was doing this. Included in the stakeout were 14 police officers, all of which thought a point had been made when sharing their findings. Nothing happened while they were there, proving that she was indeed doing this to herself, except the logical theory would be that the person watching saw a huge crew of cops in the neighborhood and simply waited them out, a little bit of a duh moment if you ask me, and all of Cindy's family. Also, if Cindy was so mentally unstable and she was doing this all to herself, would she A, be able to control her impulses, and B, wouldn't it make sense for her to make something happen in hopes the police would take her more seriously or provide more frequent surveillance? Then came another phone call. This time it was silent, dead air. Unbeknownst to Cindy, the phone company had started recording the calls she was getting. In this instance, they were able to trace the call, and it came from inside her house. Had someone broken in and called? See, back in the day of landlines, you could call your own number, hang up, and it would just ring in the house. If someone else picked it up, you could just talk on the phone until the busy signal started. So was there someone deliberately making it look like she was doing this to herself, or was she in fact just doing this all to herself? Then the meat and the fires. One day she arrived home to find a case of bad meat waiting for her on her porch. Then she called to report a fire had broken out in her home. It was put out, but upon investigation, there was no sign of forced entry. The next day, another fire. This is when investigating detectives officially decide Cindy is the perpetrator. A couple weeks after the first fire on August 21, 1985, a third fire, this time in the basement. Police determined because there was dust and cobwebs on the outside sill of a window that had been broken and they weren't disturbed, the fire had to have been started from inside the house, which reminds me of the John JonBenet Ramsey case because that was an argument for a really long time. I don't mm. know if you remember that, that the side window that was pretty obviously used, if a person was small enough to get through that window, they probably could have done it without disturbing right. things like dust. Because of the fires, Cindy ended up receiving nearly $10,000 from her insurance company. Using the money, she moved yet again, this time to the Richmond area just outside Vancouver. On December 11, 1985, three years and two months into the torment, another physical encounter. 
Taking a lunch break at work, Cindy didn't return when she was expected to. In a search, she was found laying semi-conscious in a ditch six miles from her home. She was wearing a single men's work boot and a single glove, and a black nylon was wrapped around her neck. Hypothermic and covered in scratches and bruises, she was taken to the hospital. Fast forward to April 15, 1986. After getting another upsetting phone call, Cindy asked her friend Agnes and her husband Tom to stay the night at her house. Not an unusual request, as the friends wanted to do everything they could for their friend to help her feel safe. Asleep in Cindy's guest room, Tom was startled awake by a noise but didn't think much of it. Then, a frantic knock at their door. It was Cindy, and she was terrified. She, too, had heard the noise Tom did, only she could hear it had come from her basement. She begged Tom to go downstairs and investigate, and seeing as that was the reason he was over, he opened the basement door and started to go down the stairs. That's when the smoke started billowing up into the house. There was a fire in the basement. Tom ran out of the house only to encounter a strange man standing on the sidewalk staring at the house. Tom yelled at him that they needed help, and the man ran away. So Tom went to a neighbor where calls for help were made, and the fire department was able to put out the blaze. Arson investigators determined the fire started in the basement, which they presented as proof that the person that started it was actually still in the house, but you can start a fire and leave. They felt this was continued proof Cindy was to blame. Again, checking windows, they felt there was no sign or evidence of someone coming into the house nor leaving it. Certain the fire was started by her ex, Cindy finally said she felt Roy was to blame. But according to reports, he was in South Africa at the time of that fire. This led police to want to actually charge Cindy with arson, but they didn't out of fear she would harm herself. Unsurprising, the doubt, attacks, and living in constant fear only added to Cindy's depression. Because of this, she took a leave from her job. In talking to doctors, it was decided that the best course of action would be to have Cindy spend time in the hospital. That way, she could be monitored and the mental health struggles she was dealing with could be managed properly. It would also help to quell the concerns of everyone that Cindy might harm herself, either as a staged attack or another attempt to take her life to escape the misery she was in. Once again, reports are conflicting when it comes to the outcome of hospitalization. The timeline on Ukbar calling states that the doctors eventually came to the conclusion that Cindy was in fact responsible for the attacks, while other coverage says the doctors didn't find any significant sign of severe mental illness or proof she was harming herself. In both cases, there was never concrete evidence that Cindy had multiple personalities. Once again under surveillance, there were no attacks on Cindy while she was in the hospital which proves to me she was either a victim of a stalker and attacker or she was the most monstrous type of person who could just turn this on and off. After 10 weeks of hospitalization, Cindy was sent home and assigned a new therapist. This was the summer of 86, and it seemed like everything was looking up for her. She had a new doctor. She moved yet again. But in November, the emotional and mental toll her ordeal was taking had affected her work too extremely, and she was let go from the care facility she had worked at for 11 years. Not one to give up, Cindy redirected her focus from working with kids in a care facility to direct care nursing work at Richmond General Hospital. Getting back on her feet, Cindy enjoyed an extended reprieve from the attacks. It wasn't until August of the following year, 1987, that she reported she had found a broken window and a window that had been forced open. 
This was the start of a new barrage of incidents. In September and the following February, Cindy reported that there was a hole cut in a window. I'm assuming that it was a screen. And the latter report was that her basement door was broken. Once again, these were all warm-ups to a much more extreme attack. Six years after this all began, October of 88 was marked with Cindy sending another panic alert to Ozzy via her portable alarm. He arrived at the house to again find Cindy bound in the garage. She was partially dressed and hanging out of the driver's side door of her car. A black stocking was around her neck and her limbs were tied up as well. After coming out of the coma this attack put her in, she claimed to have been grabbed from behind when she was getting out of her car. Six months after that attack, there was another attempted break-in, accompanied with what would be the final haunting note. This one left at work, reading, Soon, Cindy. And on her car's back window, written in the dew and written backwards so it could be read from the rear-view mirror, was, Sleep Well. Now, Cindy was desperate for safety. She asked Otto if he would provide her with a gun. Knowing she wasn't trained in firearms, he refused. She continued to carry his portable alarm and mace. In May of 89, everything changed gears. While talking to Ozzy, Cindy informed him she was ready to talk about things. This led Ozzy to assume what everyone had already known, that Cindy knew who was doing this to her and she was finally either fed up or feeling safe enough that she could drop names and get some protection. But before that conversation could happen, Cindy had some things to do. First, she started her week-long vacation from work. As part of her time off, she would be celebrating a friend's son's birthday and having a game night with her good friends, the Woodcocks. Getting ready for a break and some fun, Cindy started out by doing some self-care and got herself a makeover before taking her paycheck to the bank in a shopping center on May 25th. During the visit, she purchased a croquet set for Adrian, her friend's son, and corresponding wrapping paper both of which were in blue Sears bags in the back seat of her car. In the front seat, she had two bags of groceries from Safeway. In between the bags was Cindy's purse with $2.77 in it. When questioned, friends said Cindy had never seemed happier and she was ready to move on with her life. That evening, Agnes and Tom arrived at Cindy's home for games but noticed her car was not in the driveway. Worried, a search began. Soon, the car was found in the parking lot, and right away there were signs something bad had happened. Besides all of the bags and her keys being left in the car and her purse being untouched, there were more ominous signs. On the ground under the driver's door was Cindy's ATM card and a receipt. On the door handle, blood. One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice, do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. 
The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in PromoSwap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers. If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. When police started the search, one of the first tasks was tracing her steps. With the help of receipts, they were able to trace the croquet set and wrapping paper to a purchase from the 25th around 12.30 p.m. But the groceries only served to be more confusing. Detectives ran a search of the surrounding Safeways, but they were unable to find a purchase that matched that of Cindy's on that day. The only answer I could imagine would be that maybe she was taking food from her house to her friend's house. I know I've done that like for a ladies night where you'd maybe don't want to go to the grocery store. So you pack your own dinner and beverage and treat. But this sounded like several bags worth of groceries. So there really isn't an answer for them. Unlike the attacks, the police were fairly thorough in the search for Cindy. They had helicopters taking aerial photos, they had officers checking shorelines and waterways, while others checked the airports, cab companies, and buses to make sure she hadn't simply left on her own accord. They all turned up nothing. Officers also checked with every employee of the shopping center and all of the surrounding neighbors. While some recognized Cindy's picture, no one could say affirmatively they had seen her on the 25th. As the search of the car continued, multiple deposit slips and envelopes were found, along with an alarm provided by Ozzy. One of the slips showed that Cindy had deposited her check around 8 p.m. the night of the 25th. In addition to the usual papers and junk found in a glove box, Cindy's had a notepad with something interesting scrawled on it. KDV 784 Small Silver Gray. While the police did run the suspected car plate, there was no vehicle registered in British Columbia with that number. But police weren't too convinced it was a clue to begin with as they assumed the paper hadn't been used in a while as it was at the bottom of the glove compartment. Once again, in processing her vehicle, there were no fingerprints or other pieces of evidence that led police to a suspect. And in searching online, I found people only asking if the blood from the handle had been tested, no actual results. In interviewing all of the customers of the bank within a half-hour window of Cindy's deposit, a woman, Tracy McLean, who had been at the bank around the same time, recognized Cindy from a photo, but nothing more. Then a man named Barry, the bank's manager, stated he had seen a blonde woman at the shopping center. He claimed she had walked across the parking lot, but that was it. Barry gave some descriptions of the potential Cindy's clothing, a blue jacket, dark pants, but that didn't help much. Desperate for any information they could get, police asked Barry to undergo hypnotherapy just like Cindy had done, which he agreed to. During the session, the only additional information he provided was that she may have been wearing boots. The leads lead to nothing, and days begin to pass. Three days after Cindy disappeared, an insurance salesman by the name of Richard Johnston called authorities. He told them his office had received a call from a man claiming to be Cindy's father. He had asked the secretary for information regarding his daughter's policy. 
The secretary started to share details before she realized that she was breaking company policy by doing so. The call ended, and when Otto Hack, Cindy's actual father, was asked about it, he claimed to have never called an insurance office. On May 29th, there was an effort to get the Canadian Army involved, hoping to create a search party of 500 people who could comb through every empty lot, vacant house, and potential dumping site, but that request was denied. A week went by, then another. Exactly two weeks after Cindy went missing, on June 8, 1989, a maintenance worker was walking in the area of Number 3 Road and Blundell in Richmond, about a mile and a half from the shopping center, when he came upon a horrific sight. There, in the yard of an abandoned house, was a body. Laying on her side was the dead body of 44-year-old Cindy James, just four days shy of her 45th birthday. Cindy was wearing dark burgundy pants and a white shirt, her blue jacket lay on the ground under her. With a black nylon tight around her neck and another binding her arms and ankles behind her, it looked at first as though she had been attacked yet again, but this time it went too far. Tracing her body was orange spray paint, which had a trail that led to the house's fuel oil tank, which had also been painted. Etched in orange were the words, Some bitch died here. As with the previous attacks, there were needle marks in Cindy's right arm, once an autopsy was completed, it was found that Cindy had died from a morphine overdose. Her blood showed she had 10 times of what would be considered a lethal dose of morphine. It also showed she had the sedative lorazepam in her system. While at first police categorized Cindy's death as a homicide, that soon changed. Shockingly, the question didn't become who killed Cindy. It became, did someone kill her or did she kill herself? <laughs> There's a case I'm working on that caught my attention because a woman was bound and found in a clothes trunk, but because there were clothes on top of her and because a deputy could recreate the scene, it was decided she had died by suicide. The same theories surrounded Cindy's death. The police brought in a knot expert to recreate the bindings she had on her hands and feet, and they were able to do it in three minutes. Well, yeah, I would kind of hope so. They're experts. The timing mattered because there was no evidence in the area to show usage of morphine. So if she had injected it, enough so that she could die from it, it would have taken effect almost immediately. So she could potentially, if she too were a knot expert, get the knots tied around her wrists, ankles, and neck before the morphine took effect. But it would have been a close call. Again, there were no needles or bottles of morphine found at the scene. So if she had taken it in pill form, she would have had closer to 30 minutes to tie herself up, giving what the police felt was ample time to clean up, get tied up, and find a place to lay down and die. But here's the catch. That abandoned house that she was found at, it wasn't any kind of isolated area. At a nearby intersection, there are gas stations and grocery stores. In fact, she was only about 60 feet from a sidewalk, a busy one at that. How could she have been in that condition, lying there for two weeks, and not be smelled, seen, or ravaged by local wildlife? After the autopsy, Ozzy went to look at her body and found what he felt to be post-mortem lividity of her skin on her left side, which is blotching, meaning the discoloration that occurs when you die and your blood pools due to gravity. So if you die on your back, it would occur on your back. If you die on your side, the pooling's on your side. But Cindy had been found on her right side, 
opposite of the blotching. At a coroner's inquest, every theory imaginable was presented to the five-member jury over 40 days. After every testimony, witness, doctor, police officer, family member, friend, doubter, and supporter, it was determined Cindy's death was a result of an unknown event. In the seven years spent working on the case, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police spent nearly $1.5 million dollars. Her friends and family feel a murderer has walked free due to the mistakes made by police. Police and legal teams feel a tormented woman desperate for attention sealed her own fate. Sadly, that's the end of Cindy's story. Suicide has not been ruled out, and there doesn't appear to be any continuing investigation into who, if anyone, was the perpetrator. Since we don't have any concrete answers, let's break down the theories. First, and most obviously, we have the ex-husband. He wasn't just a doctor, but a psychiatrist, a mental health professional, someone that understood the human mind, psychology, and had access to medications like morphine. One comment I saw online read that he should have been happy to have had a patient to study if Cindy had been, as he claimed to police, dealing with a case of multiple personalities. Multiple personalities, or in today's verbiage, disassociative identity disorder, is extremely rare. DID isn't casually used for someone with a borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. No, this is the textbook, one personality actually takes control of the person situation, kind of like in the movie Split. But that kind of condition is so rare, it's thought to affect only between 0.5 and 2% of the population. There are some experts that believe there's a lack of diagnosis or misdiagnosis, and the number might be closer to 7%, but even that still makes it a very rare condition. While multiple personalities have basically been ruled out, there are doctors that worked with Cindy who felt she was struggling with borderline personality disorder. The biggest difference between BPD and DID is that those with DID, or what used to be referred to as multiple personalities, they really see reality as being altered or heightened. Assuming a mental health or medical professional would enjoy being married to someone just because they have a condition that might be fun for them to study is a complete falsehood. However, making the connection that Roy was a mental health professional, therefore would know what to say about someone to make it sound like they were mentally unfit, is a fair assumption. What about who Roy knew? Roy was rumored to be friends with his colleague, Dr. Ty Hurst. I could probably do an entire mini-episode on Patreon about this guy. He was accused of sexually assaulting and abusing patients, never going to prison even though charges were brought multiple times and he was even found guilty in a court of law for sexual and physical assault, but the charges were overturned. He did have several payouts in regards to the accusations, one even totaling over half a million dollars after it was found he had forced patients to stand naked while he whipped them. He was also known to attend trainings by CIA agents regarding mind control. So a theory has arisen that in conversation, perhaps Roy's friend talked to him about mind control and abuse, or they even worked together, this doctor being the alleged other perpetrator. But as we've discussed, there was no proof Roy was involved. In fact, he claimed to be a victim in all of this as well, that it was Cindy tormenting him. He knew she was mentally unwell, and she decided to act out and blame him, nearly ruining his career. 
He even claimed to have been on the receiving end of similar phone calls that sounded like a woman. So perhaps Cindy was a scorned ex-wife who wanted to get revenge on Dr. Roy for his abusive nature. Abuse wasn't new to Cindy when she encountered it with Roy. At the coroner's inquest, excerpts from her journals were shared, including how much hate she held towards her controlling ex and her former military father. Her doctors also shared they felt it was pretty clear her mental health issues stemmed from a childhood incident, perhaps a sexual assault or frequent abuse that led to PTSD and exacerbated her borderline personality disorder. So perhaps this was the longest and most intense revenge plot ever. Or maybe she didn't do it to herself out of revenge, but for attention. For seven years, she had the police at her beck and call, her friends to rally around and support her. Could this have been a form of Munchausen? There were also rumors that her other ex, Officer McBride, had either teamed up with Roy or was on his own in the torture. Some reasons people think this could be the case was due to his intimate knowledge and involvement, his access to her and her home, but there was no evidence. There are, of course, other more extreme theories. It was the 80s, so of course it was said that perhaps she was a victim of a satanic cult, or maybe she had gotten mixed up in an unhealthy BDSM relationship that had gone too far. Then there's the cops theory, that she killed herself. I know it seems impossible, but there have been documented cases of people stalking themselves. This is a little bit of a spoiler, so mute for like 10 seconds if you don't want to hear it. But I highly suggest you watch the 2020 episode about Carrie Farver. The synopsis is basically a woman disappeared and then she started stalking her ex's new girlfriend, sending threatening texts and letters, and it went on for years And it turned out the new girlfriend had killed the missing girl, and she'd been stalking herself all that time. So this is something that can and very rarely does in fact happen. So Cindy cannot be ruled out 100%. In what feels like maybe one of the most odd things I've ever heard in an interview with a family member of a victim, Tilly, Cindy's mother, had this to say about her daughter's potential suicide. Cindy was the type of person, was a very proud person, if she wanted to commit suicide... She would take her dog, dress herself up properly, lay on the bed, and that's how she would commit suicide. Not the way she was found in that horrible place. I can't explain why that clip is so upsetting. I guess that hearing a mother has played out how her daughter would have taken her own life and to paint it in an almost beautiful light is just odd feeling. But I guess denial makes you think in strange ways. But just like there was no evidence to prove there was an outside party, there really wasn't evidence to show she had killed herself. There was no sign of morphine at the scene. In fact, it was pretty clear that Cindy had been killed the night she had gone missing before being placed at the house. When checking her bank history, police never found proof she had ever purchased black nylons either. So how do you explain her walking away from her car, smearing blood on the handle before walking a mile and a half, laying down, overdosing on morphine before binding yourself, including putting your hands behind your back. In doing the research for this case, I have changed my mind a hundred times. I'll read one thing that makes it seem like there's no way she could have done this. Then I read something like the phone call coming from the house, and I'm convinced the other way. Perhaps that was just it. Maybe she was struggling with a mental health issue where she did in fact plant some notes or cut her phone line, And she had an ex-husband or stalker that was also tormenting her, her mental state making it difficult for her to decipher the difference. In conclusion, I don't know the answer. 
What I do know is that Cindy was wronged, be it by a perpetrator, perpetrators, or herself, or the police, more could have been done. If there was someone doing this to Cindy, the police really dropped the ball by deciding early on that Cindy was the culprit. They let a murderer go and let Cindy get killed. If this was all Cindy's doing, they still dropped the ball. If they couldn't find proof of an outsider, why couldn't they find proof she was doing it? And why did they let it go on for so long? This wasn't just a lady calling now and again thinking she heard a noise. This was a woman who was found on the ground, impaled with a knife. This was someone who was a danger to herself and potentially others, and they simply rolled their eyes. The responsibility, either way, still falls on them. I think Cindy had some mental health problems, and I think there were people in her life that were controlling and perhaps abusive who wanted to torment her for their own pleasure. The combination led to fear, confusion, and miscommunication. I think she was genuinely fearful for her and her family's safety, and I think she knew Roy was involved in some way. What are your thoughts on this one? I have a lot of thoughts. There are I so mean, many. My biggest problem with it is we don't have any evidence right. of um, whether the wounds were self-inflicted or if they could have been done by another person because there is science in mm -hmm. that and sometimes you can tell. We don't have someone who spoke to the bindings. Could she have done it herself or was it, you know, the direction another person mm -hmm. would have had to have done? No fingerprints, no phone records that we have access to handwriting analysis could be done so there's a lot of stuff that i think would sway me one way or mm -hmm. another but it who's to say it's not a combination too was it a lot of self-inflicted stuff because somebody was tormenting her in the beginning uh, i find it hard to believe someone would go to the lengths that she did mm -hmm. um, especially with you know, no evidence of purchasing black nylon, for instance. Right. That is evidence against it. That someone it else is. did it. And or or does it say she was so extreme in this that she planned it for only a long time. Paid in cash. Right. And, you know, what sticks out or even reading through this time, you know, I don't know about you, but each time I go through a case, it's like something else that sticks yeah. out. Mm -hmm. And for me it's like obviously suicide affects anyone any age any gender any race any anything and there's no concrete thing to say someone would or wouldn't do it but it's hard to imagine that as part of her plan unless her mental health was so extreme which is possible even though all of her family's like she was still her if it was so extreme that she went out of her way to deposit a paycheck to go get her hair and makeup done that's not something usually that you see someone who's mm. then going to mm -hmm. go to their car and then walk away and die at their own hand you don't really see that very often that someone's going out of their way to kind of treat themselves or planning to go uh, to a friend's and then I'm birthday because it's like are you getting the makeover because you want to look your best when they find you like i i, I don't know. Uh, when it comes to her death just the just the death I believe she was murdered. I think she was taken. I see. And like separate from the events. Separate the from everything, years. just the death. I think she was murdered because I I think she was put in a freezer or put in a, a cooling space. And then they waited till like two weeks on the day to make it 
seem like something or dramatic. that date. Yeah, because everything has been so dramatic. That, but then again, someone who works in forensic science would be able to tell that about a body, right. right? So there's a lot here that I'm like, either we just don't have the evidence or it was too long ago to... There's so much that's hard to find. And my theory is that, one, they, it was the 80s. And so we didn't have like full DNA and all that. And so I think a lot of it was kind of like skimmed over and not bothered with because they were just annoyed with her. And I think that through time, there probably is evidence that shows more of who it was or uh, reports. Did they follow up when that officer saw Roy in the back area? Was that followed up? And then they found it years later. So now they've suppressed everything. Sounds like a good case to reopen and look at again if uh, somebody, you you know, with a lot of money could. Yeah. Um, I have more thoughts. Yes, please. So the one thing I found interesting, and I don't know until this comes out of my mouth what way I believe if this is in support of her mm. or against her. I find it surprising that someone that has had this much trauma and has been stalked within that first month or mm-hmm. whatever, that she would give her key to a stranger, even though he is a police officer give her key to a man to have free access to her and then go to a hypnotist which as someone traumatized i think would have a hard time with without maybe a third person present to supervise it there are several decisions that she made along the way that for people that don't believe her it goes to them like, why would you walk your dog at 8 o'clock at night why would you give someone a key then again if you're desperate for protection i could see escalating that relationship with a police officer so that they're around you oh for sure but the hypnotist always throws me i i find it very scary to be that vulnerable Mm. so without a third party but that could have been her trauma too like sometimes trauma sometimes trauma builds up the walls and sometimes it means you don't have those boundaries so she could have been that direction right the cop boyfriend was he a, a believer of hers from what i read it sounded like yeah that okay. he was on her side. She didn't have a ton of people. Her parents believed her. But even in seeing a bunch of different interviews with her parents, it's so strange to me. If you sat here right now and you're like, I was attacked last night. I know who did it. I can't tell you. You'd better believe I'm not letting you leave this house. Yeah. Or we're figuring it out until you're safe. And when the mom is talking, and this is not... Uh, that this is anyone's fault. It's just a different dynamic and it's hard to understand for me. The mom, you know, they're talking and she's crying because it's so horrible and she's attacked all the time. And the mom's just like, you just got to fight, Cindy. You got to fight. She's like, I'm fighting, mom. Yeah, I'm I would fight. react different. I'd be like, you're moving home so that we can keep We're putting you in a safe house. We're calling the FBI. I mean, But again, it's like there's, I think, a lot of detail we're not privy to. Yeah. And then I keep going back to the Roy recording the phone call. So mm-hmm. hear me out on this. Yeah. I feel like this is in support of him being involved mm. because mm. Mm-hmm. so these events have happened post-divorce and they think that they've been dating for some of that time up to two years. Right. Right. Something like but that. But at some point it turns and he's like, no, now I'm being abused and she's part of it. Like I'm also getting phone calls. She's constantly contacting me about all these issues and it starts to be um, a negative dynamic. And then he's recording these calls and turning it over to the police. So in my eyes, I'm thinking he believes he has evidence. It's like he's setting up his own alibi. she's doing it all. Mm-hmm. I have nothing. I'm recording it. But it, 
but it's like a risk for him because now the police are still looking at him as being involved. So I I find that very interesting because almost every situation you have alternate sides. You have the friend coming over to check on her. That was another point that people said, if you look between the panic button or when she thought her friend might come over when she was found hurt, with the exception of walking the dog, it was when someone was expected to come over. So that's another point where people say she was setting it it up because then they find her and she gets the attention. And it is very Munchausen. Oh, my gosh. I can't talk. Munchausen. Munchausen. Yeah. Um, Which it is. But it's also like you're getting it's all this negative. But also it's happening so frequently. So was there a way even around that? Yeah. Well, and then it ebbs and flows, which is normal behavior for stalkers and harassment. I I think in the end, I believe her. And either way, she was unwell. I don't I still don't know. I I'm tending to lean towards most of it being self-inflicted. Okay, interesting. Only because I have no evidence to go. Uh, there's of. an unsolved mysteries that, you know, it's ten minutes long, so you don't get all of the details, but uh definitely there's pictures and videos of stuff, so it's like, oh, Okay, I think in the end, I feel so certain like there's not no way, but there seems to be almost no way that she did that to herself to kill herself. I mean, she had already shown if she was going to attempt that she's just at home taking pills by herself. Here she is hogtied behind her back. Yeah, that's tied on her neck. The sp- I mean, you can take everything apart. You can You're say right, she though. went and spray painted everything and then she did a circle the death, and then she laid down. If you look at the death separately, I do feel like that's a different outcome than a lot of the buildup. And You're it's right. like abusive people like she claimed her ex-husband to be and he even admitted to being physically abusive. They get off on that kind of thing. It's the control yeah. and it's the I'm making you. You've gone full Sandra Bullock in the net. No one believes oh, you, God, which is my biggest movie. fear. So so much anxiety. I'm also thinking, though, Gone Girl. Yeah. Where it's like they're get so revenge. smart and so ahead of it that they have plotted it out. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't have an opinion. I don't know yeah. because I don't think I've I've seen enough evidence. So question for you. What is the book called? There are several. One is The Deaths of Cindy James, and the other is uh, Who Killed Cindy James. Her sister was writing a book as well, Who Killed My Sister, My Friend, and I can't find it anywhere. So she has a website, but I don't think she's actually written the book. Which one is the expensive one? They both are because they're out of print. Well, I'm going to check some of my sources where they often scan the books. Okay, because even Josh went on a hunt and we had... No, yeah. So I would. Well, I'm obsessed now. This has so, so many. I mean, there. This are... is my new career. <laughs> uh, there are. Books... I'm gonna start a GoFundMe to fund my <laughs> reopening this case. There are books. There are Reddit's. There are message oh, boards. I love Reddit. There I will, are. I will fall down this rabbit hole. So many things and things you don't think of. Like, was this tested? Was that tested? Well, and I'll, everything's hidden. I'll do my own reading, and yeah. then I maybe will form another opinion yeah. to talk about with you at another time. And but... I think. The long and the short of all of it is either way, she was a victim. Yes. They ab- didn't get her help absolutely. if it was her. That's what. That's also where I go back to it with someone else. No one's perfect. No one is gone girl 24-7. How did they not find any evidence that it was her? Say it was her. Say it was. And you're the police. You get people locked up all the time. Get her on a three-day hold. Yeah. Just to see what happens. Yeah. 
I I am get a warrant for the house. Check every drawer for black it's nylon. Check for rope. Whether that it was one person, multiple people, or she did it herself, it's very disappointing. Yeah. And, and then you're to right, say she's a victim. Then to say, oh, we feel like there's uh, evidence for the arson charge, but we don't want her to kill herself. Since when is that what you do? Like I'd rather that they had charged her and even gone to court oh, to just get her put away, see if stuff and continues. one have her protected, and two present evidence. You know, yeah, and is, that's where I go with Roy. I'm like, I feel like I feel like Roy could have been charged in a grand jury, but there's so much doubt. I as a jury member, I couldn't have convicted him. That's but at least where it would I get land. eyes on him. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like I know police are, pol- or the DA is usually hesitant to f- go forward when they don't have evidence. And I right. understand that you don't want to let a murderer get away. Exactly. with something. But it feels like there's something they could have done to maybe get more info. Yeah. So, yeah, this one's. It's a good case. Um, it's horrible. It's upsetting. It's it so frustrating. Upsetting. You know how I feel about Unsolved. And this and we'll always think about. And Roy has since passed. So uh-huh. even if they found anything, I think about eight years ago, he passed away. So I just think it's in- interesting that he was a mental health professional. He was friends with this guy who, which you can't, what, what's that phrase? You know, or Guilty by association. Right. You can't just do that. But it is a little alarming to have someone so extreme that was like, abusing patients be chummy with this guy who another doctor usually is potentially doctors would disassociate exactly. from those people too like i don't want to be judged exactly. because of that exact reason you're going to judge who your friends are yeah a little shady shaderton over there yeah. but i i don't like i said i don't have enough evidence to tell you what i think yeah it's a messy one and i feel for her because being herself or what i feel someone else Either way, that's a long seven years of torture. I don't care if it's yourself. That's still torture. That Mm -hmm. mental health is still torture. So I feel for her. I mean, what a horrible end to your life for seven years to be worried and scared. And for people that are like, she shouldn't have been walking her dog at night or whatever. It's like, or even Josh had asked, he's like, oh, she still took a nightly bath. And it's like, she can't change everything can't, in her life yeah, because of it. You can't throw Although away everything. You, I had a different reaction when you said nightly bath. I thought it was very odd. <laughs> like a nightly bath. It's, I'm guessing it's it. part of like my morning ritual. Right. She probably had a nightly ritual. Yeah, but I cannot. She... I need to stop judging people's rituals. <laughs> but I just don't like to bathe that often. Yeah, no. Often. Her friend was like, she took like an hour long nightly. Like that was her thing to decompress from the day. So... In addition to Immunization Awareness Month, August is also National Black Business Month, so I would like to end the episode with some COVID commercials for Black-owned businesses whose products I enjoy and hope you purchase from. For bearded folks, we've got a couple of goodies. One is Hudson & Young. They are a beard care company, and Josh is a big fan of their leave-in conditioner and oil. You can find all of their goodies at HudsonAndYoung.com. Also for beards, there is Diop, which can be found at wearediop.com. Using beautiful Nigerian fabric with stunning patterns, they have beard-accommodating face masks, another one Josh is quite fond of. Now, in addition to their masks, they also have clothing and accessories. During COVID, I went a little Shark Tank crazy. My roomies and I would watch, and I would look up the product and quite often purchase them. 
One of the best decisions was getting Jacks for Men sheets at Herkleon, that's H-E-R-C-L-E-O-N.com. While they were presented as being for men because they have a special antibacterial element because dudes don't change their sheets very often, I still bought them and love them. They are incredibly comfortable and soft, period. And it's nice to know they'll stay cleaner longer. And gender is a construct, so buy whatever you want. You can get your own set at HerkLeon.com. Remedy Rich Brands is one of my favorite brands with shirts like Cannabis Never Left Me on Red or No One Should Be in Prison for Weed. It's probably pretty understandable why I want one of everything she sells. With bold lettering and even some new tie-dye shirts, you should all support this awesome brand and you can do so by visiting RemedyRich.com. As I'm not only getting older but trying to stay fresh looking through quarantine, I finally took the plunge and bought actual skincare products for my beautiful face. What? Can you believe it? Uh, no, I cannot. Instead of just hand lotion? Or like soap you got at a hotel How three years ago? dare you? <laughs> That's why I am so glad I did, and I am so delighted to have found NOLA Essentials. Not only are the products wonderful and supple and so good smelling, they're also vegan and cruelty-free. So treat your face at nolaessentials.com. Finally, y'all know how much I love Butter Effect lotions, so go buy some at ButterEffectPDX.com. But more importantly, with the rental moratorium coming to an end soon, the owner is seeking funding to be able to move into a converted van so they can stay housed and still be able to make and sell their amazing products. So please take just a moment to visit Butter Effect on Instagram and click on the link in their bio. If everyone listening donated even just a dollar, he'd be way past his goal. So let's put our allyship and words into action and show him that Black Lives Matter. Thank you so much for listening. And if you or anyone you know is struggling with a mental health crisis or domestic abuse, please visit findahelpline.com where you can input your location and find a hotline that fits your needs. Merman. <laughs> Harassment and confusion. I kept saying 40%. Instead of 47%, I keep oh, saying 40%. That's, that's a new one for even me. He went to Cindy's on his own accord. <laughs> Police once again have Cindy take a polygra polygraph. Polygraph. A superhero came up with. Oh, yeah. Holograph. <laughs> and she can just see the truth. She sees the she truth. She knows the truth yes. at all times. Yeah. And then she prints a readout from her vagina. <laughs> That's right. You can hear the needle scratching the paper in there. <laughs> oh, she shakes. <laughs> I sense oh, yeah, deception. Like... <laughs> Once again, have Cindy take a polygraph, which she passes. <laughs> or she recognized. The, the recognizing, that was just odd. Didn't know what you meant. Well, it's when you see something that's familiar. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's when you see something you've seen before. You're just a fucking oh, asshole. I didn't hear a single word you just said. You sounded like a broken child's toy. You think that you're sounding more clear right now? <laughs> it's just so funny. You 
many calories yeah. do you burn if you just lay there? Four. <laughs> and it's just from what comes out. <laughs> Friends had taken notice and were scared. <laughs> we all heard it. We all heard it. <laughs> it also showed she had. It also showed. She- There's a case I'm <clears throat> funky dunk. <clears throat> So this is something that can, but very rarely does happen. Mm. (laughs) I did it again. I love that D, baby. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 